Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Happy 413 day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> also, it's my Nana's birthday. Hi, Nana. Well, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> How about this? Yay, Nana. Yay, Nana. Later in the show, some positive local musical news coming out of the Drake and Amherst with a report from NEPM's Ben James. But also some sad local news. Doug Tibbles, the drummer from Greenfield-based Stone Coyotes, has passed away. We'll talk with another Greenfield-based drummer who also happens to be the drum tech for the Rolling Stones and a pretty great sound guy, Donnie McCauley, about his passing. But first... Thondup Searing is the coordinator for student success at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, three-time president of the Regional Tibetan Association of Western Mass, the former board of director of Students for Free Tibet, and has also served as a member of the board of directors for the Karuna Center for Peacebuilding in Amherst. Thandup is welcoming to UMass Amherst this Monday Tenzin Sundu, poet, writer, Tibetan refugee, and activist. As of 2019, Tenzin has been taken into preventative custody, arrested or jailed 16 times for short durations for his activism by Indian authorities. When he was 22, he traveled to Tibet, but was arrested and sent back to India. His fifth book, Nowhere to Call Home, was launched in New York this past month. Tenzin and Thandup, thank you for joining us. Tenzin, I was wondering if you'd be willing to... Do you have the book in front of you? Ha, yes. Could you read the first paragraph on page 14 from your new book? Page 14. Okay. Ask me where I'm from and I won't have an answer. I feel I never really belonged anywhere. Never really had a home. I was born in Manali, but my parents live in Karnataka, South India. Finishing my school in two different schools in Himachal Pradesh, North India. My further studies took me to Madras, Ladakh, Mumbai. My sister's in Varanasi, but my brothers are in Dharamshala. My registration certificate, my permit to stay in India, states that I'm a foreigner residing in India and my citizenship is Tibetan. But Tibet as a nation does not feature anywhere in the world political map. I like to speak in Tibetan, but prefer to write in English. I like to sing in Hindi, but my tune and accent are all wrong. Every once in a while, someone walks up and demands to know where I am from. My defined answer, Tibetan, raises more than just eyebrows. I'm bombarded with questions and comments and doubts and sympathy, but none of them can ever empathize with the plain simple fact that I have nowhere to call home. And in the world at large, all I'll ever be is a political refugee. That is from the collection of essays called Nowhere to Call Home. Also some poems from Tenzin Sundu, who will be at UMass at the Integrative Learning Center on April 17th at 5.30. You mentioned in that paragraph, Tenzin, that your parents uh, live in India, essentially are farmers, seeming to live a simple farming life. And yet you, every time the president of China comes to India, <laughs> get, get arrested. Yes. What? And thrown into the nearest jail, yeah. I can't believe it. What made you into an activist as opposed to just staying at home and farming in India? Right, my parents escaped uh, from Tibet. And from childhood, I learned that my parents had to leave behind their homelands. And I am not in any way able to go to that homeland. So I've been deprived of my homelands. And I felt that from a very beginning of my childhood in school, that I don't have a home, that, that I'm a refugee, that I'm a born, born refugee. So this has been my biggest concern from childhood. And I wanted to give my parents their homelands. So I've been thinking I have to fight for the freedom. I, I want to be a freedom fighter. So I've been uh, mostly working as 
as a writer. I developed myself into a writer. The two to write in English because the interna- international community, they do not know anything about Tibet. So I wanted to tell my story. I want to read poetry to the international community, but also did activism where I got arrested a number of times by Indian authorities. Every time the Chinese president, prime minister, they come to India. So I've been to jail 16 times up until today. Is there anything that you've done apart from writing that's prompted them to be so nervous about you that they would throw you behind bars? Oh, yeah, I've I've done some in- really interesting protests, <laughs> stuns. I've once the Chinese prime minister, uh, Zhu Rongji, uh, was visiting Bombay at that time called Bombay, now Mumbai. He was giving a speech uh, to some of the biggest Indian tycoons in the Oberoi Hotel, the 30th floor building. And I climbed up the building from outside using the scaffolding up to the 14th floor and hung a long red color cloth banner saying free Tibet in large letters. That got me arrested. And and ever since that time, every time the Chinese prime minister, presidents, they come to India, the Chinese embassy in New Delhi makes a request to the Indian government to put this fellow away. They don't want this guy to disrupt or embarrass their prime minister and president. But these protests are nonviolent. There's nothing violent or... Absolutely. These are just... They they look uh, crazy because, you know, I climb up tall buildings and... But these are absolutely strategic, nonviolent action stunts. Those are the most dangerous ones, usually. Yeah, things things that Indian police cannot even think about climbing up those kind of Like, why is uh, he on this building? No, come down from there. Get in this jail. You mentioned wanting to do, or at least that some of the motivation for this is to bring Tibet back to your parents. One of the things that is worrying, especially in generations and, and refugee populations distance from homeland is loss of language. Are you worried about the preservation of the Tibetan language? Absolutely. I think this is uh, one of the major concerns for all immigrants. And the United States is perhaps the biggest country of immigrants. You know, what happens w- with the immigrants is because they are, they are uprooted from their homeland, and they are immediately cut away from their language, which is based on the native land, weather, plants, birds, flowers, songs, dance, food, clothing. All Suddenly you are out of context. And yet um, you want to, uh, uh, you know, be yourself, be uh, learn your language and culture. So therefore it becomes a constant and forever struggle just to keep yourself alive in your own language and culture. Tibetan refugees, right from from the beginning in 1959, ever since His Holiness the Dalai Lama came to India, from that time we had been uh, struggling first to keep and preserve our own language and culture. Tandap Singh, you are a member of the Tibetan parliament in exile. I assume that that's part of your mission with that organization too. How does that organization work as essentially a refugee organization. And how are you doing it out of Amherst, Massachusetts? Yes. There is a a sizable, very vibrant Tibetan population in West Massachusetts that started uh, way back in 1991 after the uh, U.S. resettlement project. Uh, We are about 140 people. Uh, The youngest, I think, is about a year old. One of the main objectives of the Tibetan community in West Massachusetts is really to preserve Tibetan culture and tradition. As you've asked, the preservation of Tibetan language is one of the most important objectives 
of the community here in exile in the free world. Uh, some say that the Tibetan culture and language is more alive outside of Tibet than inside occupied Tibet. The United Nations Committee on Economics, Social and Cultural Rights recently did a hearing on the issue of boarding schools in China. Over 1.2 million children, some as young as three, four years of age, are taken or removed away from their family and home and put in these so-called boarding schools, where the whole objective is really to turn these Tibetan kids into Chinese. So a lot like the, the Indian boarding schools that were in the U.S. for year, and Canada for years. And the banning of those languages here. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And the United Nations Committee has called on China to abolish those boarding schools and to allow Tibetans to set up uh, independent Tibetan schools in, in, in occupied Tibet. So it's very clear that inside occupied Tibet, the Chinese government is intentionally reducing Tibetan language to a folk language. And so all the more reason for Tibetans in free world to preserve our culture. If our language dies, our culture also dies with it. This is something that the Tibetan community in Western Massachusetts and the 30 other Tibetan associations throughout the United States are really working hard to preserve. We're speaking with Thundup Searing, who's the coordinator for student success at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and part of the Amherst Tibetan community, and Tenzin Sundu, who will be coming to speak at UMass Amherst uh, this Monday. Tenzin, you've written this new book, Nowhere to Call Home. It'll be the Western Mass debut of the Nowhere to Call Home book launch event. In Western Massachusetts, we're represented by U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern, who just recently introduced some bipartisan, bicameral legislation to strengthen the U.S. policy to promote dialogue between the People's Republic of China and the Dalai Lama, which we'll have to address the elephant in the room about the Dalai Lama's recent controversy in a minute. But tell me what you think about this uh, promoting a resolution to the Tibet-China Conflict Act. Right. This bipartisan, bicameral legislation that has been introduced, it's, it is important because this will recognize United States stand that Tibet has a unique and deserving right to self-determination. And that is important because no country has ever done this. And, and if this passes, if this becomes a law, United States will give legitimacy to Tibet, and this can then encourage other countries, United States allies, uh, NATO countries, or even European countries, and most importantly, India, to look at the issue of Tibet from a different perspective and to look at Tibet squarely on the Tibetan people's rights. So this is path-breaking, it's most encouraging and inspiring for, uh, for us as Tibetans. Coming up more with Thundup Searing and Tenzin Sindhu on preserving Tibetan culture and staying connected through resistance in preparation for Sindhu's talk at UMass Monday. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. We return to our conversation with activist and poet Tenzin Sindhu coming to UMass on Monday and educator Thundup Searing of UMass who helped bring him to the area. The Dalai Lama who's largely beloved across the world, had a huge controversy last week, some people calling it amounting to child abuse, where he stuck out his tongue and asked a young boy to suck his tongue. And I hate to have to bring it up because there's nobody in the world I would love to admire, full stop, more maybe than the Dalai Lama. But I'd love to hear both you, uh, Thundup, and you, Tenzin, your take on on that controversy. Especially since Tenzin in his book mentions that his parents considered him unlucky because he wasn't in a picture with the Dalai Lama. Right, and I have felt unlucky that I myself have never been in a picture with the Dalai Lama. So let's let's start with you, Thundup. What, what was your take on, on yeah. that controversy? Um, 
I think uh, this is very unfortunate. But I think the larger question is, this happened at an event that was a public event that was live telecast. It happened on February 28th. The parents of the child was there. So why is we giving so much credibility to a five-second video clip without looking at the larger context and what really happened? I think what this drives me to home is the power of fake news, the power of negative campaign. Because if you look at the entire video, which is almost three hours long, and the theme, it it becomes very clear. His Holiness intention is very pure. As a Tibetan, I have no doubt uh, and have no uh, concern about what His Holiness said and did. I think having been a self-taught English learner. I think some of that was lost in translation. As we all know, His Holiness is very humorous. And I think his choice of word, uh, from a Tibetan perspective, uh, sticking out a tongue and saying, bite my tongue, I think that's what he intended to say. And if that was the English terminology that he had used, I think there would have been totally different perception. My bigger concern is who is behind this what is their intention? And I think as Tibetans, we know very clearly who's behind this. They're trying to discredit the His Holiness the Dalai Lama. They're trying to divide the Tibetan community, and they will be successful. Anything to add to that? Tenzin Sundu, who will be at UMass Amherst on Monday? I think, uh, you know, what? Uh, when, when I saw this uh, about two months ago, I felt this was such a grandfatherly gesture of affection to this to this little boy whose mother was also there right in front of his holiness the dalai lama uh, his mother was the one who was actually bringing 120 uh, indian children all the way from delhi to dharamshala to get blessings from his holiness and the boy also says towards the end of the audience that uh, for him it was a just a very positive response from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And the mother says it's such a blessed uh, meeting with His Holiness and getting all the message of love and compassion. Now, concern here is about the way internationally media, uh, social networks are being misused by certain people to cut one small bit of a five to 10 second video Take it out of context, sensationalize it, and some of the TV uh, uh, media companies, they put it forward just to raise their TRPs. He has given entire life, not just for Tibet, but to the entire world, asking everybody to denuclearize, to think of peace, to think of nonviolence, and work and educate it at the entire world. If the world today has one person who everybody would love and follow, it His Holiness the Dalai Lama. This is the time where the world needs to save its own savior. One of the things that I really admire about like some of your work, especially in, there's a poem in your book, Cora, uh, called Space Bar, A Proposal, which talks specifically about reserving and obtaining space for refugees. In what ways do you save space for yourself as a Tibetan and for others as Tibetans? I think uh, one of the most important things is to tell the Tibetan story. We are a very small population. Uh, most of us actually don't speak uh, English, uh, for my case also. 
English is not my mother tongue. I learned English. And even when I went to uh, college, my spoken English was very limited. I worked extremely hard in gaining some uh, command over speaking and also writing. Um, but it's important to tell our story and because the internationally people do not know. The Western world used to look at Tibet as Shangri-La, the non-existent uh, ideal world. And now that Tibet is under Chinese occupation and much of the Western world, they are dependent on China's supply chain and trade. And most of the countries have actually signed up with whatever China has been saying about Tibet. So this leaves very little space for Tibet. So it is important for us to tell our story. I talk about Tibet, the land, people, culture, language, and the unique perspective and the contribution of practice of love and compassion that we, and especially uh, the leadership led by His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, the culture of love and compassion is what we can uh, offer to the world. Because we used to be warriors earlier, and ever since we uh, embraced Buddhism from India, we have become a country of love and compassion. And therefore, I believe that whatever China does on Tibet, either destroying our monasteries or uh, forcing Tibetan children into Chinese uh, schools, whatever, I do not think China can do anything to us because we are so convinced with the, in our culture of love and compassion. That's Tenzin Sundu, who has a new book, Nowhere to Call Home, which he'll be presenting this Monday at UMass Amherst. The event at UMass is being organized by the UMass Students for Free Tibet and the Resistance Studies uh, in the Sociology Department at UMass. Thondup Searing, the coordinator for student success at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. The book is gorgeous, even the paper that it's bound in. It feels so It feels nice. so wonderful to hold in your hand, Tenzin. It's called Nowhere to Call Home. And the prose is beautiful. I would love, because it's National Poetry Month, uh, Tenzin, if you could close out by reading us the poem on page 45. Should I read that? Or um, do you want me to read uh, the spacebar proposal? I mean, Which, whichever one you'd like. I I would okay. I would love for spacebar. Right, uh, spacebar proposal. This was a poem written in uh, Mumbai. Uh, there was a time when I was university student and I didn't have a place to stay, and we used to be invited as poets uh, to rich people's homes. Pull your ceiling halfway down, and you can create a mezzanine for me. Your walls open into cupboards. Is there an empty shelf for me? Let me grow in your garden with your roses and prickly pears. I'll sleep under your bed and watch TV in the mirror. Do you have an ear on your balcony? I am singing from your window. Open your door. Let me in. I am resting at your doorstep. Call me when you are awake. Oh, That's the proposal. It. I love it. Beautiful. <laughs> Thank you both so much. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you for having us. Up next, we head to Fort River School in Amherst to hear how a class of fifth graders is learning to change the world. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Khalees Smith. In Amherst, a small collection of fifth and sixth graders are currently in the middle of a uniquely structured civic engagement class. We went to Fort River School to hear directly from some of the students and their teacher, Tim Austin, about the projects they'll be working on. Tim Austin, 
Tim, you have an interesting class that you teach here. What is the name of this class? Uh, well, I teach language arts and social studies, but the project um, that we're working on right now is called the Civic Literacy and Organizing Project. It basically starts with students writing about what they want to see changed in the world. And then from there, they build their background knowledge on a variety of issues and eventually come to a consensus around one particular thing that they want to take action on. Uh, and that's the point where we're at right now. Uh, they're ready to plan and run a campaign. And you've got two different campaigns represented at the table of students uh, right with us. What's your name? Samantha Green. How old are you? 11. I'm Maisie Lonergan. I'm 11. You two are working on a campaign together, right? Yes. What's the campaign that you two are working on? Treatment of refugees. What informed you about this topic as something that you wanted to try to, to uh, work towards changing some of the, the treatment of refugees? Mm, I'm not really sure. I was kind of like interested. Were you in that um, class where the person came from Afghanistan? Yes. Uh -huh. well, both of our classes did it. Uh -huh. Both of our classes were. What do you remember about the person from Afghanistan coming to speak? Do you remember the person's name off the top of you? Uh, his name was Fahim. Mm -hmm. Do you remember what Fahim said that made you think this is an interesting topic that maybe we can help as 11-year-olds affect some change? He said that there was like a lot of people who needed to leave his like their country that, he, that they came from. We realize that it's a problem because a lot of people weren't get well. A lot of refugees weren't getting good education or somewhere to stay, and it seemed like a problem to us. He was um, telling us the experiences that he went through when he was um, escaping Afghanistan, and I thought it was like really interesting and kind of inspiring to like see what refugees go through. I'm Elo Schwabe. I'm 11. And you're working on a different campaign. What's the campaign you're working on? Indigenous Peoples Day. So tell me about what you're hoping to see happen with that. I'm hoping to see that we can change the name of Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day. Why? Is that something that is important to you? I think because Indigenous peoples are sort of like neglected in the like story of this of the holiday and we just on and we honor Columbus although he just like enslaved these people and took and like stole things and yeah. It feels like a person we shouldn't be really celebrating, and the people we should be celebrating are indigenous peoples. Tim Austin, you've been doing this class for how many years? Um, the first time we did it, the way that I described it a moment ago was uh, 2000, spring of 2019. We did it every year since then. The pandemic year was kind of got messed up, but mm -hmm. other than that, we've been going strong ever since. <laughs> what are some of the other topics that some of the other classes have focused on? Um, we've had students who've uh, chosen to work on protecting forests in Massachusetts, several different campaigns centered around climate change. I think last year we had students working uh, to pass a bill that would have gotten 100% renewable energy in Massachusetts. And the first year we worked on this project, one of the classes decided to work to change the Massachusetts, the Massachusetts state flag. And that's actually the only group that has, has won their campaign. Um, <laughs> they didn't win it until they were in eighth grade, uh, and the flag is still not changed, but it is, um, it is on its way to being changed. So You're actually wearing a shirt from that yes. campaign with a proposed design that one of the students, I think, here came up with, or no? Uh, it was actually a paraprofessional uh, named Aaron who uh, works in our class this year, too. And he, he's an artist, and he 
he made this design just because the class was working on it and and they got really excited about it and they wanted to put it everywhere and <laughs> uh, he actually submitted it to the commission that's working on this and I don't I don't know what will happen with that but it would be kind of neat if it <laughs> if it came out of that right and rather than an indigenous man with a sword over his head and a threat in Latin it's three <laughs> indigenous women with the with uh, the, three the three sisters of yes. beans and squash and corn. corn. Yeah, and, and he he wanted to sort of keep parts of the current flag. So the, there is a Latin phrase um, that said that it, when translated uh, is seed well, harvest better. Mm. Um, so he thought that could be a potentially good motto for, for a state flag. We're hearing all sorts of stories from around the country about public schools and about indoctrination or about trying to force specific worldviews through the schools to the kids. Are you getting any pushback in our area, in Amherst, about like, why are you talking about refugee issues? Why are you talking about indigenous issues? Why aren't you just teaching the curriculum? This new type of revisionist histories in some people's minds shouldn't be taught in schools. They, they want the history the way that they learned it. Um, we haven't gotten any of that sort of pushback, although I've heard a lot about it. And the kind of the kind of pushback that we have gotten um, has been more around um, the issues themselves. So uh, the example that comes to mind is the students who are working on protecting forests in the state ended up getting some letters published in local newspapers, and that sort of caused a, an uproar amongst. It turned out. A, someone in the, in the logging industry, and they ended up writing back to the paper and, and sort of challenging that the students should be doing this at all. And so it, it wasn't so much about an idea of indoctrination, just more they kind of wanted to shut the students down, which is sort of the history of student activism right there. <laughs> A lot of the students who, who have participated in this unit either go on and continue working on what their class was working on. Like there's always a small core group that's like, yeah, we're gonna keep it going over the summer. Because the problem is of refugees is not solved in right, one exactly. school year. <laughs> and so there are, there are a number of students up at the middle school this year who are working on uh, plastic pollution um, and kind of extending that work. And it's funny, they've, they've sort of shifted focus. They're not working on exactly what they did last year, but they've they've said, okay, here's this other thing we want to target. And, you know, those those little plastic nip bottles that you see in littered along the roadside everywhere, we wanna we wanna do something about that. And so they're working on working on something related to that now, even though that wasn't their focus last year. So you're looking at refugees in in the US for your project, yes? What would you like to change about the situation of refugees here? We'd probably want like more refugees to like make it easier for them when they come to the United States than like how hard it was for a lot of other people before. So we would probably plan on doing some sort of event to raise money for that somehow. I was just gonna say, Samantha, I don't know if you feel comfortable talking about your connection to this. Oh yeah. My mom was a refugee from the Cambodian Civil War. And when she told me about that experience and I saw that treatment of refugees was one of the options. I just kind of liked wanted to do that one, so I circled it. How do the options get decided upon? Because there might be people too that'd be like the forester, for instance, saying like, well, you know, who's choosing these and, and who's saying there's unanimity around this class wanting to do this? Like my sister's class when she was in middle school made Boston cream pie, the official state dessert of Massachusetts, <laughs> much more benign, but still gives you the sort of idea of how like a bill becomes a law or how these things happen. 
Um, so the, the options that the students end up considering come from their own writing. So they, back in February, I think, I, I asked them to write about what changes they wanted to see in the world. And, and from there, I, I sort of take a look with uh, other teachers at like, okay, what's actually happening around these issues um, in our local area? So a lot of students wrote about issues around racism, for example. Um, and so that's how we ended up figuring out, okay, there's some there's some activism around Indigenous Peoples Day, and oh, our state senator, Joe Comerford, actually is sponsoring this bill to, to make it a state holiday. Um, and then this year, actually for the first time, a lot of students, um, especially from your class, Maisie and Samantha, wrote about refugees because I, I think there's been so much more that students have realized in the last year with the war in Ukraine and, and some of the other uh, situations that are going on around the world that, that there's a need for that. Um, so all of, those, all of those, those issues come right from the students' writing. So it's kind of reverse indoctrination in a way. I, I, I've actually developed an interest in indigenous issues because of the work that that students have have brought forward around this a few years back so you're all 11 years old you're all students here at Fort River there were some sixth graders right from Pelham that are now doing a similar topic they haven't figured out what they're going to work together on right if you had to choose what you wanted to be when you grow up today what would it be and know that nobody's going to hold you to this but that you can dream as big as you want to right now I wanted to be an author since I was like five. I would write like little books. I found them when I was moving here actually. I found like four and my family was like laughing for like ever because they were so stupid and like. (laughs) (laughs) Khalees is an author. I'm going to posit that if you've already written books, you're already an author. Yeah. (laughs) So. What about you? Um, I have like no idea but I play like soccer and lacrosse and like it I would either want to be like an athlete or like I would want to do some sort of like research on animals. Mm. Honestly I don't really know either. Yay! But yeah, nobody knows. <laughs> um, it's an unfair question that I Probably asked. something like what Maisie said something to do with animals. Mm. There's an old Paula Poundstone joke about that. It's like why you know why adults are always asking kids what they'd like to be when they grow up. It's because they're looking for ideas. Yeah. Do you think? (laughs) I don't disagree, but also she's kind of right. If you had asked me when I was 11, I would never have thought I'd be a radio host or what even wanted to be a radio host. But what we talked about when we came and spoke to your classes is a little bit about like how no matter what you're doing with wherever you're at, be you 11 years old and a student here in Amherst or a an author or a soccer player or working with animals, you can still affect change in the communities that you live in, or at least try to work hard together. Do you feel like what you're learning in these classes is something that you will continue when the class is over? Do you feel like you might feel inspired to try to work on other civic issues apart from just doing it in school? I think probably, yeah, because it's something that it's like once you experience like in, in school that you or anywhere really that you're trying you're trying to some civic um, change or like social change it's something that it's like you want to do more of now because you eyes have kind of been open to like there's all these things that you really could change something about because before like this unit in school I wouldn't have thought that like I could actually do anything towards social change. Mm. 
Thanks to the staff at Fort River School for allowing us to interrupt their busy day. Special thanks to Tim Austin for helping us make that all happen. Next on the Fabulous 413, we'll hear about a new project in jazz at the Drake in Amherst and pay tribute to a pillar of the local music scene. You're listening to the Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. The Northampton Jazz Workshop's Tuesday Night Jam Session has been a staple of the Valley music scene for well over a decade. Its newest location is the Drake in Amherst, Massachusetts, where the session features a more ambitious and younger crowd of musicians than ever before. New England Public Media's Ben James has the story. It's an evening in early March at the Drake, and 21-year-old Avery Joy closes out her version of Bye Bye Blackbird. Ooh, Joy has her own band now, but five or six years ago, back when she was first getting into jazz, she was just looking for a way to perform. I was like, I want to get gigs. I want to play. How do I do that? And my mom was like, I have no idea. A friend of hers told her about a jazz jam session in Northampton. It was so weird being 16. It was all like older people. It was at a bar next to a bowling alley. So it was Really interesting, but I love the music. They were so amazing. They would get people from New York, people from California. The session was hosted by the Northampton Jazz Workshop, led by pianist Paul Arslanian. My mom kind of dragged me over to Paul and was like, my daughter's a singer and she really wants to sing, that kind of thing. Paul invited me up and was really, really welcoming to me and asked me what I wanted to sing. She was working on the jazz standard, All of Me. Joy didn't yet know how to improvise, but Arslanian heard something in her voice right away. Her pitch is very centered. She really nails it, and then people can hear that. So you can tell that, that she's singing from uh, a place inside her. It goes, all of me, why not take all of me? Can't you see I'm no good without you? It's like a really simple standard song. I was so excited to sing it. I had so much fun and I got a lot of applause and there weren't any other singers. So I was really excited to do that. And ever since then, I just kept going. Anytime my mom would let me, cause I couldn't drive. <laughs> yeah. But what was that like for you to discover that this thing that you love is like full of old people, yeah. you know? It felt like I was doing something crazy or something really rare, but I have such a supporting, loving family. My mom was like, you know, if you like this, it's it's a it's a gift. And loving something that is a part of your culture, Black American culture, it is a very very good thing. Jam sessions have a long tradition in the world of jazz. Here's trombonist Steve Davis. It, it it's 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 a way to learn. It's it's a way to learn the music in the visceral moment. Davis has played with some of the greats, including Art Blakey. He teaches at the Berklee College of Music, and in late March, he was the guest soloist for the featured Tuesday night set, backed up by Arslanian's band, the Green Street Trio. Paul Arslanian and, and George Kay and, and John Fisher, they've been the rhythm section uh, ever since I can remember. Uh, at least for me, it goes back a good 15 plus years. After a couple year break due to the pandemic, the twice-a-month show reopened at the Drake. During the first and more structured half the night, Davis and the trio played with a couple guests, including Hartford-based trumpeter Hanif Nelson. The 
house was full, and it got more packed throughout the night, as one late arrival after another came through the door with some sort of instrument, a trumpet, a sax, a sheaf of drumsticks carried over their shoulder. All right, we're gonna get uh, a jam session started now. There are more young musicians at the session than ever before. Students from UMass, some even driving up from the University of Hartford. Hanif Nelson has taught more than a few of them. We go to school now and we learn jazz, but there's a lot of learning that you can't do on the, in school that has to be done on the bandstand. The jam session is the real thing. It's where you figure out where theory and real world actually meet. And then we have a whole uh, plethora of shiny instruments. Come on up, guys. Arslanian calls musicians by name, makes quick adjustments to the lineup, asks what song they want to play. And frequently, he gets to call a certain vocalist up to the front, just like he's been doing since she was 16. We're going to bring up Avery to sing one. What's it going to be, Arslanian asks. And she says, how about Satin Doll? Uh, saxophonist, come on up to play Satin Doll. Here we come. OK, here we go. Cigarette holder. Which wigs me over his shoulder, he digs me out, cutting that satin doll. It feels like pure joy and um, kind of being comfortable with being uncomfortable, not knowing what's going to happen, but knowing that if it connects, it's going to feel great and, you know, kind of experimenting and listening. Being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Every other Tuesday night in Amherst. For New England Public Media, I'm Ben James. Thanks to Ben James for connecting us with some of the communities keeping jazz alive in the valley. But at the same time, the local rock scene is reeling from the loss of one of its stalwarts. Doug Tibbles of the band Stone Coyotes has been a fixture of the Western Mass rock scene for decades, so the ripples of his passing have been wide. We sat with fellow drummer, drum tech for the Rolling Stones, and so much more, Don McCauley, about Doug's impact on rock in the valley. From the positive musical news coming out of the Drake in Amherst with the jazz scene being revived there, uh, some sad musical news that we in the Valley and beyond are getting over the last couple days. The passing of Doug Tibbles, who was the drummer for Stone Coyotes. Stone Coyotes, iconic local band, but Doug Tibbles' story goes much deeper than that over uh, his history. He was a television writer before he entered the fray of music, writing for shows like the Munsters, Bewitched, My Three Sons, The Andy Griffith Show, with his wife Barbara Keith, who the writer Elmore Leonard modeled uh, the follow-up to Get Shorty, Be Cool around the book, and their son, John Tibbles, they formed the Stone Coyotes who made their home in Greenfield. Doug was the drummer, and another drummer from Greenfield joins us. He's out on the road with Jeffrey Focalt, will be at the Drake, on Saturday playing, and in his day job is the drum tech for a little band you might have heard of called the Rolling Stones. Donnie McCauley, we're here to reflect on the life and legacy of Doug Tibbles, the drummer for Greenfield-based Stone Coyotes. What are some of your thoughts 
after we've learned now of his passing? Well, too many. It's just, he's just such a wonderful guy and always encouraging everybody in the Valley. Um, and I think I can speak for all sorts of musicians that came up um, around the Bay State when we were all playing the Bay State and places like that, is that these guys were untouchable. The Stone Coyotes were untouchable. They were just the, they were the solid rock and roll band. And a lot of people thought, what the hell is this guy doing? Because he's so, so unorthodox of the way he plays. It was just, it, it made everybody realize that they have to be unique in their own approach to music because he was so unique. What, uh, what made him unique in the way that he played? He, well, he was a jazz guy playing rock and roll. That sounds like Very, somebody else that I have heard of that you used to yeah. work for who has also sadly passed away, Charlie Watts from the yeah. Stones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a, a jazz man stuck in a rock and roll band. Uh-huh. Very much so. And he looked up to Charlie a lot. Um, he came to a Stones show, and he was, you know, he was lucky to get behind Charlie's kit. And wow. As well as he's lucky to get behind all sorts of other kits, I mean, and hang out with other great players. I mean, he was hanging out with Dennis Wilson when he was living in, in California, and stories go on and on. Things that he thought were not a big deal were huge to, to us coming up. And um, Because he had this huge Hollywood background, as I mentioned, you know, being a television writer for these, like some of the most iconic television shows of all time. Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. And hanging out with these guys in that era, he was, him and Barbara Bull, dead center in the middle of that scene in the 60s and early 70s. And it, it has to be mentioned, too, that it comes up from his dad. Mm-hmm. His father um, wrote the Woody Woodpecker theme song. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it was something that would never be let, you know, let go of by, you know, I think uh, the story of Frank Sinatra hanging out with him and saying at the Oscars, saying, you know, you made me it made me sing this song. They're making me sing this Woody Woodpecker theme song. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's the Woody Woodpecker song. He's a pecking it all day long. It goes on and on. I mean, the guy, unbelievable artist as well. Um, beyond a drummer, he just was, and, and a screenwriter player. He did these collages for all the records, but he had, so many collage uh, artwork pieces that he never let anybody see. It's like private book of stuff, and mm. uh, I think we're going to see. We're not. We haven't seen the last of him, and we're going to. We're going to. You know, his legacy is going to go on and on, and it and it lives through the speaker. You know, he's there every day. We're speaking with Donnie McCauley, drummer from Greenfield, just around the corner from the late drummer Doug Tibbles of the Stone Coyotes, who passed away. This week, and our condolences go out to his wife, Barbara Keith, and his son, John Tibbles, who made up the rest of that three-piece family band that doesn't feel like the family bands that he might have been writing about in the golden age of television, like the the Partridges or the Bradys. They they were definitely a rock band. But but also it should be mentioned that Doug Jr., Doug Tibbles Jr. is in that band as well oh. later on. Yeah, so, it's, so it was a four-piece band. I mean, it was a real Partridge family kind of situation uh-huh. going on there. You mentioned that Doug played in an unorthodox fashion. The thing that stands out to me is how he sat when he played in an unorthodox fashion. Can you talk a little bit about what made uh, Doug so unorthodox in his method of drumming? Most definitely. Uh, what made him so unique and so unorthodox was his his quirkiness of where he put the fills, um, basing off the snare drum. He had this he had this rave rock and roll beat going on, 
And he he says it's because he was watching all these great jazz drummers, you know, um, Elvin Jones and, and, and Philly Joe Jones and all these guys. And he would put the snare drum fills in the weirdest places. Mm-hmm. People are like, why? That's not right. What are you doing? It was perfect. It was absolutely perfect. But he had the same vibe of Charlie where he would get his hands off of the hi-hat and hit the snare. And another guy who didn't know why he did it, but he just did it. And that's what stands out to me is really fascinating, too. So for people who don't play the drums, most of the time in rock and roll music, the hi-hat, which is those two symbols that are closed together, the, the, drummer, the drummer has uh, oftentimes playing one and two and three and four and on that hi-hat, and then a snare drum on maybe two and four. But Charlie and Doug Tibbles both did the thing where they would lift up and not hit it on the hi-hat and only hit the snare. And it leaves a little bit of a void, but it gives it this other interesting groove. It, it does, and it, and it adds this breath. It adds this open space that basically less is more. Yeah. So when you when you open up something, it reacts off of somebody else, and somebody else reacts off of that. And he played off the vocal line. His, his snare patterns, his bass drum, his fills were all a call and answer to um, his, his wife, you know, um, Barbara Keith. It was all this call and answer. And he had never played drums before he played with her. That should be that should be mentioned that it's not like, you know, she found this drummer. She just found it. She found someone who was this amazing artist. And yeah. then he decided, oh, we need a drummer. So they, Doug tells me that they used to play to a drum machine and it was like relentless. Like playing to a drum machine to a click so that their timing was all perfect. Yeah, it's it's a very, very unique player. You can only really describe it in that way, but you have to see it and you have to hear it to understand it. Speaking with Donnie McCauley, drummer, playing with Jeffrey Foucault at the Drake on Saturday, currently out in the eastern part of the state with Jeffrey Foucault, also has uh, valley roots in the music scene here. Donnie's also the drum tech for the Rolling Stones. Um, One of the other things that made Doug interesting is a lot of drummers sit on what they call a throne or it looks like a stool, but Doug did not do that. Yeah. Doug would just get a random chair oftentimes, even one that was at the venue and use that as his chair. Do you have any idea why that was his, his Uh, mode of doing it? No idea. I think that's what, you know, they made all their records in the basement of their house in Greenfield, Massachusetts. They made all their records there. And I think the stool was like, yeah, you know, that's what I do. And I, I, I don't know, do something else, like paint or something. But the the, the common desk chair or box, you know, you just sit on that thing. Um, yeah, that's his thing. You know, <laughs> he wasn't he wasn't he wasn't trying to be somebody. Um, he wasn't trying to fit in. Yeah, he was trying to be who he was. And he wasn't ever afraid to share his opinions. I had a lot of spirited discussions oh. with Doug Tibbles oh, yeah. about. About what music he liked versus what music I liked. But I never did not enjoy having those conversations with Doug. And uh, uh, our hearts go out to the Tibbles family, the remaining members of the Stone Coyotes, and with the passing of of Doug Tibbles, the drummer, this week. Donnie McCauley from Greenfield playing with Jeffrey Foucault at the Drake in Amherst on Saturday. Always a pleasure to talk to you. And we'll have you come by and uh, talk... when things are are more positive in the music world too i'm looking forward to that let me know when that happens (laughs) yeah always great to talk with you as well 
Friday in the fabulous 413, Pulitzer Prize-winning author Tracy Kidder will talk about his new book, Rogue Sleepers, Dr. Jim O'Connell's urgent mission to bring healing to homeless people. It's Live Music Friday, and we'll visit the Parlor Room in Northampton to hear Flora Reed and Philip Price from the Winterpills, who are playing the Parlor Room on Monday. And we'll get into the wine Thunderdome once more, taking it to the mountain with Nijame Wine Cellars in Lenox. Our director is Tony. I don't know about this guy, Don. Our engineer is Betsy, epic missing phone saga Cordis. Our technical team is Bart. Oh no, it's Moving Day Rankin Kara. I eat Moving Days for breakfast, Foster, and Punk Rock Dubay. Musical thanks to the Stone Coyotes. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. See you tomorrow on the Fabulous 413. I do.